A new movie called God and Country is currently showing across the United States. A Christian journalist has reviewed this film and has told us all we need to know. This film is a radical malignment and misrepresentation of Bible-believing Christians. According to the biased perspective of its left-wing producer, virtually anyone who is against abortion, LGBTQ rights, or critical race theory is obviously a Christian nationalist who hates women and is trying to destroy our country by uh, ruining democracy. That's us. Okay, clearly, this is not very edifying. It's one more indication that God's people are in a battle against a very aggressive enemy. Hostile spiritual forces are behind this, and they are always looking for opportunities to attack us. In this secular age, it can feel like we are surrounded and outnumbered. We can adopt the attitude, what next? And it can seem that those who are trying to delegitimatize us and isolate us from acceptable society, uh, their goal is no less than that. It may seem that our survival is hopeless, but that's a false feeling. That is not our condition. Today's passage in Mark 14 describing the Last Supper, Christ's last meal on earth uh, before his death, that this passage offers the encouragement and help that you need to not just survive, but to win this battle every day. In this passage, Jesus is, uh, has the power to defeat the enemy. How do you access that power? It's by following this Savior, by following him and trusting his power. The connection here, as we saw last week with the passage about the triumphal entry, this passage also uh, has a, an important connection with the prior context that helps us understand how this passage unfolds. And so just take a quick look up, uh, just a couple of verses in Mark 14, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Now, what did they need from Judas? What did they need him for? They all knew what Jesus looks like. They could have arrested him at any point in his ministry. He could have been arrested any time that week. He spent much time that week from the triumphal entry to a few days later as this story unfolds 
in the temple, right in front of them, uh, in their own turf. Why did they need Judas? Well, they were keenly aware that Jesus had much popular support. And to arrest him publicly would have opened them to the ridicule and the opposition of the citizens. So what they needed was an opportunity to arrest him in a private setting where nobody else would even know. That's where Judas comes in. And so what is Judas's role now? The last part there is the key. He sought an opportunity to betray him. Here's the enemy on alert, watching, when can I get him? And that same enemy has the very same goal for all of us as well. He's looking for the next opportunity. Christ is aware of that. Sadly, we often are not. And we can uh, cruise through life day after day, oblivious to the reality that there's this aggressive enemy on the lookout. But Christ knows. He's prepared. And as he demonstrates his preparation, he's also offering the same help to us today. Verse 12 then tells us it was on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They knew the routine. They no doubt had been in Jerusalem for the Passover uh, each of the few years that they had been spending with Christ. But their question is looking to him. Where do you want us to go? He's their leader. And so his response then is cryptic. Why is it cryptic? Because Judas is standing there with him. As soon as he heard the word where, his ears would have perked up and he's ready to write down the address. As soon as I hear that, I'll go back to the temple, tell the priests they can come tonight and arrest him quietly, mission accomplished. But instead of an address, instead of a name that he would know, what does he hear? He hears Jesus send two of his disciples and give them these instructions. Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Can you imagine Judas at that moment Leaning forward, trying to hear it all. Is there one more thing you're going to say? No, he's done. That's all the disciples need. And there's our point. That's the, here's the first lesson from this passage. All you need for safety in this hostile world 
All you need to succeed is follow the Lord's directions. He doesn't tell us where we are heading all along the way. We know ultimately. He doesn't give us a destination from day to day. He gives us the steps to take. The disciples' first steps, then, are to go to the city to watch for a man carrying a pot of water. That was not going to be difficult to discern because the men typically did not carry the water. Uh, the women did that. Well, here's a man carrying water. That's, that's not going to be too difficult. And so they find that man, they follow him. We don't know if the householder was a prior arrangement that Christ made. It could have been. Uh, I'd like to use your guest room uh, for the Passover celebration. It could have been set up ahead of time, and all this instruction is just to get the disciples to that place. Or maybe he hasn't even told the homeowner, but he knows there's an unreserved guest room. And so Christ says something very bold. He says, uh, where is my guest room? Possibly here, similar to the triumphal entry. The Lord has need of this cult with the implication, and after all, he does own it. My guest room. Yes, there's a caretaker, but he owns everything. So whether there was prearrangement involved here or not, some even suppose that the man carrying water was a prior arrangement. He's to wait for a particular signal, and then he's to start through the city and meet up with... I don't think so. To me, that's a little too far-fetched. That's just Christ controlling the circumstances to make sure his disciples get where they need to be one step at a time. What's your job then? Follow him. He will protect you. He can conceal from the enemy. He can reveal the path forward day by day. Sometimes it seems like it's even just moment by moment he's directing what to do. And wouldn't you know, in verse 16, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. Christ has a perfect record about this. We don't have to wonder if he knows what he's doing this time. Does he know what I need today? Yes, he does. Does he know how he wants to use you today? Yes, does he know where you need to be? Does he know what you have to have? What resources? How much money do you have to have to serve him today? He knows it all. Christ is in control. He can protect you from the enemy. He can direct you to the right place day after day. His planning is always complete. His guidance is always precise. Now, Christ knew the destination. 
Christ was apparently not getting his instructions from the Father step by step, not knowing where he was going. And you might think at times, we're, we're tempted, oh, what an advantage it would be if God would just show me the whole path. Uh, it's, just, it's just uncomfortable to have to set out and not know exactly what's lying ahead. Love to know the whole thing. Probably not. That would probably not be a blessing. Can you imagine what it was like for Christ throughout his earthly ministry to know where he was heading? He did know. He even told his disciples ahead of time, and they struggled to handle that information. Christ had to handle it. That God doesn't reveal the whole path ahead is his mercy. That he only tells us what we need to know next. That's something we should praise God for, not ask him to change his routine. As you know, I grew up in New England. And I, I felt God calling to serve as a pastor back in New England. God directed Jan there as well. She's not from New England, but through his work and her heart, she always wanted to. And had a lifelong ambition then to spend her life there and serve God there. God brought us together. And there, there was a, a, a point in the progression of our relationship that uh, we had to uh, know where, where each one is heading. And she had a specific question. Okay, well, I was in the midst of uh, seminary training, and so I had a few more years. I needed to be in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, her question is, well, what after that? Oh, God's burdened me to go back to New England. The needs there are great. Well, okay. Then, then I'll marry you. Okay. It wasn't quite that explicit, but uh, you got the idea. Because that's all I knew. What I didn't know is 15 years later, he was going to redirect me right back here. And I have a very strong suspicion that if we had known that ahead of time and I said, well, I think maybe about 15 years or so, I may stay in New England, then I'd like to spend the rest of our lives down here. Mm, uh, she would think she would keep on looking. Uh, so I thank God that he only tells us a step at a time. Okay? Because that is all we need. The challenge for God's people, follow those steps. Trust the one who's leading, the one who is so keenly aware of the dangers all around us. You can trust God to keep you safe. Now, true obedience to his leadership is, in fact, a long-range goal, that there are failures along the way, that we get the message, and I don't think that's the best thing for me next, and we divert from the path, that we do that, sadly, is reality. 
but it exposes for us that there is in fact another need. Not just his guidance and our commitment to obey what he says, but repentance, turning from those instances of sin in which we have diverted from his path. Repent of that sin. Verse 17 brings us into that upper room. With the meal prepared, the meal is unfolding, but Mark and, and pretty much the other gospel writers as well choose to tell us virtually nothing about the meal. No insights about the menu except what we know from the Old Testament. Nothing about the conversation going on during this time except for one point of discussion. Here is the one recorded aspect of the conversation, and it's in verses uh, 17 to 21. As they were reclining at table, and reclining is the right word, they were laying down with their feet away from the table, the table is low, and they're propped up on one elbow and eating the meal with the other hand. As they were, this is, the, this is the formal dining setting in the first century. Uh, doesn't sound so uh, appealing to us, but for them, this was the, the height of luxury. As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, as readers of Scripture, we're not surprised at this because the narrators have been telling us all along. Every time there's a list of disciples, it gets to the end and it says, and Judas, who also betrayed him? So we've been getting these reminders and we shake our head every time Judas's name comes up. But the disciples, here's the first word the first indication that there's an enemy among them. So no wonder in verse 19 that they began to be sorrowful. But here's the surprise. Rather than everybody looking over at Judas and thinking, oh, I've always wondered about him, nobody suspected Judas. Who did they suspect? themselves. They became sorrowful. In verse uh, 19, they began to say to him one after the other, Lord, is it I? This is really important because with this generic announcement, one of you, everybody is suspicious of themselves. Why would that be? Because we know our own hearts. We know. I don't have a really bright track record of doing what the Lord says. Now, granted, this is like the height of sin, betraying Christ. But if we're capable of diverting from his path in any instance, we could be capable of any sin. This is a horrible prospect, they're all thinking. It could be me. Lord, is it I? 
Now they're suspicious, but none of them have this plan to betray. So they ask their question in a way that actually expects the answer no, but it's still a question. And they're looking for some reassurance from the Lord. But they don't get it. He lets them feel the weight of this possibility. And the next thing he says increases that weight. In verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. That was part of that dinner. They would have bread and they'd have a a sauce. They would dip that in. And at that moment, every one of them is looking around and realizing, I've been dipping my bread in that sauce. It could still be me. He has not relieved their anxiety. Why would Christ let that happen? This is a warning to his own people. And it's a warning that we need as well. The warning to believers is that he knows the pressures of temptation that you face. And he also knows the weakness of your heart. This warning is a, in fact, a gracious offer of help. I know what it's like for you, and I'm here to help. I can help you turn from sin. I can forgive that sin. It's a soul-searching moment. Verse 21, he goes on one step further. And he gives a point of instruction. And in this case, the warning is specifically for the lost. Judas was in that category. No doubt there are some among us who are in that category. You might be blending in really well, but in your heart, you know, you've never turned from your sin and trusted Christ as Savior. Verse 21, Christ says something remarkable. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put on trial. I am going to be crucified. It's going to happen. Why? Not because there's an enemy, but because there is a God who is following his gracious plan to save the souls of people. For that reason, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And we realize that he would say the very same thing for any person yet unsaved. Should you die in that condition, the punishment for sin is so terrible that it would have been better for you not to be born. But of course, that's no longer an option. What is an option is trusting Christ as Savior. You see, there are two things at work here. 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That is God's sovereign plan. It is going to happen. But there's something else going on, and that is human choice. Human responsibility. Yes, God is going to accomplish his purpose. God has a plan, but you have a choice. And just like it is with the other 11, his, his letting this pressure of guilt settle in was a gracious offer. Let me help you. So it is here with Judas and with anyone who has not yet known Christ as Savior. Think, whoa, what a terrible fate must await me. But Christ is here offering a gracious call. Turn from that sin. Come to me. Trust him as Savior. And so we are left with two pertinent questions. The warning is both for believers and the lost. The two questions, number one, am I saved? Has my sin been forgiven? And then number two, am I walking with the Lord right now? Am I following him Or do I need to ask his forgiveness again? You see, those two questions bring us right up to the Lord's table. And it's at this point that this passage shifts from the last supper, the Passover meal, to a very focused, a very special, a first-time event on that occasion that we call the Lord's Supper. And so we are going to transition now as well. Yes, we have four more verses, but Pastor Brian Hoffman is going to come in just a moment, and he's going to lead the rest of our service, which is around the Lord's table. Our preparation for that, though, is just as these last few verses have said. You ask yourself. This is self-introspection. Number one, Am I saved? The answer of Judas was, no, I'm not. And because his obstinacy led him to further declare in his heart, and I don't want to be, it was at this point that Christ dismissed him. He said, what you do, do quickly, John's gospel tells us. And so he went out, and it was night. And then he proceeded only with those who believe. Now, we're not dismissing anybody, but if your honest answer to the question, are you saved, is no, I'm not, and I don't want to be, at least not now, not today, then we ask that as we proceed with the Lord's table, you just let the the plates pass by and that you not participate. For those who know Christ as Savior, the question is just as serious. Are you right now walking with him? As you look into your heart, expect that there's something there that needs forgiveness and ask him for that.
Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we look into our hearts, we don't like what we see. There is waywardness, there are sinful desires, there's pride, there's selfishness. Father, we pray that you would cleanse us and forgive us. Help us, Father, as we recommit ourselves to follow your path, to submit to your plan and the step-by-step instructions that you give. We pray, Father, for those who do not yet know Christ as Savior. Oh, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. Would you direct now your people as we focus our attention on a special way that Christ has designated for us to remember what he had to accomplish in order to provide for our salvation. Would you direct us as we proceed into the Lord's Supper now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.